0: You're listening to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. When Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed, and all Israel was dismayed. Now, Saul's son had two men who were captains of raiding bands. The name of the one was Ba'ana, and the name of the other, Rechab, sons of Ramon, a man of Benjamin from Be'eroth, for Be'eroth also is counted part of Benjamin. The Be'erothites fled to Getaim and have been sojourners there to this day. Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. And his name was Bethibosheth. Now the sons of Ramon, the Beerothite, Rechab, and Baana set out. And about the heat of the day, they came to the house of Ishbosheth, as he was taking his noonday rest. And they came into the midst of the house, as if to get wheat. And they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and Baana, his brother, escaped. When they came into the house, as he lay on his bed in his bedroom, they struck him and put him to death and beheaded him. They took his head and went by the way of Erebah all night and brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. And they said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. Yahweh has avenged my lord the king this day on Saul and on his offspring. But David answered, Rechab and Baana, his brother, the sons of Remon, the Beerothite, as Yahweh lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity. When one told me, Behold, Saul is dead, and thought he was bringing me good news, I seized him and killed him at Ziglag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more! When wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house, on his own bed, shall I not now require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? And David commanded his young men, and they killed them and cut off their hands and feet and hanged them beside the pool at Hebron. But they took the head of ish and buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and this is episode 754 of this podcast. That was a reading of 2 Samuel chapter 4 on Saturday, November 11, 2023. And in this episode, we will be talking about why liberalism failed, the book I just finished by Patrick Tanine. We'll also be talking about a few items of note, which will help us to appreciate the value of such a book by Deneen, but we will, if we can, if we can fit it in, if we've got time, we'll talk about an excellent article that my neighbor Two Houses Down, J.P. Chavez sent to me this week. He always sends me the best articles, and I'm not going to tell you what the article is just in case we don't have time to get to it, but I will say I hope to fit it in if we can move along at a brisk pace with some of these other items. But before we get into all of that, why liberalism failed, some current events items, that article that is going to be a surprise for you, let's talk about 2 Samuel chapter 4. It's a short chapter, and actually, there's not a lot of time that I need to spend on it because it's pretty cut and dry, no pun intended. Ishbosheth is king over Israel. He is the son of Saul. That was his claim to the throne. And oh, by the way, besides that, he had Abner in his corner. Abner dies at Hebron because he's murdered by Joab and Abishai, two brothers of a man named Asahel who had been killed in battle by Abner. They took vengeance and they murdered Abner straight up when Abner came to David at Hebron to make a covenant and make some arrangements for giving the whole kingdom to David. Abner dead, ish loses all of his courage. His courage failed, it says, and all Israel was dismayed, which is to say everybody knew that Abner was the power behind the throne. Everybody knew that with Abner dead, ish his days were numbered. He was not going to last very long without Abner there to protect him. And by that, we should understand Abner was not just physically going to protect him in the moment, but Abner was somebody you wouldn't want to cross. If you acted against Ishbosheth, you would have Abner to deal with afterwards. And Abner was a very dangerous man, a very forceful man, a very purposeful and relentless man. But now Abner's dead. And Ishbosheth, as well as all the rest of Israel, knows that this is a big deal. This is a big deal. Shift in politics and in what is possible for the whole nation. So then you get these two guys. Saul's son had two men who were captains of raiding bands. These guys, for what reason do you think, go into the house while Ishbosheth is taking his midday nap? They go in, they murder him, they assassinate King Ishbosheth of Israel. Why do they do that? Well, it's, I think, Strongly implied that they are going to finish this work that Abner was going to do. They're going to give the kingdom of Israel into David's hand by giving the head of Ishbosheth into David's hand. David, when they bring the head of Ishbosheth, does not welcome this. He doesn't say, Wow, great job. Thanks, guys. Here is a handsome reward. They were probably expecting some handsome reward. He doesn't give them a positive reward. He rewards or rather repays what they've done, this treachery against the king of Israel by destroying them, having them put to death. Their remains are displayed as a warning. They are not just killed, they are dismembered. Their hands and their feet are cut off and their bodies are hung up to serve as a warning. David does not want people helping him out in this way. Now, if you'll remember, Saul and his sons, when they fell in battle on Mount Gilboa, the Philistines took their bodies, took Saul's body, cut his head off, but then hung Saul's body and the bodies of his sons from the walls. And when the men of Jabesh Gilead heard about this, all of the most valiant men of Jabesh Gilead went all through the night, retrieved the bodies, brought them back, burned them, and buried the bones Properly. David commended those men for honoring the remains of Saul and his sons in that way, even though Saul had been an adversary and had sought David's life unjustly, unfairly. He was the Lord's anointed. Well, so also, for very similar reasons, because it's not all just about honoring human remains because they're human remains, for very similar reasons, the bodies of these two men. Rechab and Ba'ana are dismembered and displayed as a warning to everybody. So we understand that there's a distinction being drawn between Saul and his sons, on the one hand, even if they have been acting as enemies, and the bodies of these two men in particular, even though they came presenting this head of Ishbosheth as if it was a present. David is putting everybody on notice, like with how he mourned and lamented the death of Abner, he does not have the blood of Saul's household on his hands. There cannot be even a little bit of doubt in anybody's mind as to David's innocence with regards to Saul and the house of Saul. Saul was acting as an adversary, and it didn't matter. He was the Lord's anointed. How was he the Lord's anointed? Not just because he was king, but because Samuel the prophet had anointed Saul as king over Israel because God said that Saul was to be king over Israel. Was Saul a good king? Was he a not so good king? Well, that was God's business to figure out as far as David was concerned. So also with Saul's sons. With the death of Ishbosheth here, David is not pleased. He's not happy about it. He's not Welcoming this news, oh, man, yeah, that's just the break I was looking for. And he wants everybody to know that. He needs everybody to know that. And that's exemplary. That is honorable. However you feel about the gruesomeness of a king being assassinated and beheaded like this or the assassins themselves being put to death and then their bodies displayed, dismembered and then displayed, it is gruesome. Yes, I grant But however you feel about it, the bottom line is that just because you get to a certain end, as in just because David might become king over all Israel in this set of circumstances, in this course of events, that doesn't mean that the ends justify the means. And that is terribly relevant to what we will be talking about at the end of this episode when we get into Patrick Deneen's book, why liberalism failed. But that's enough for second Samuel chapter 4. There will be much more to unpack in chapter 5 in our next episode tomorrow. Or if you don't subscribe for 99 cents a month to this podcast, you can get it December 1st. You can check out this episode December 1st and then you'll be going back if you didn't listen to episode 755 which I will hopefully lord willing be recording tomorrow. But Enough about that. For right now, let's move on into some current events items. As I said, we'll keep it short and sweet with regards to 2 Samuel 4. What is going on in the world today? For starters, consider a report at not to be from Anthropos, not his real name. This is clearly a pseudonym and the profile picture I Trust is not actually Rain Wilson from The Office, although it looks like it's Dwight Schrute. The character, Rain Wilson, is the actor. Anthropos, November 9th, 2023, the day before yesterday. Liberal journos out here gaslighting telling us that our bills aren't high because of inflation. It's all because of, drumroll, high prices. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, <laughs> what. <laughs> Uh, uh, what causes the high prices, journalists? Anyway, as Anthropos writes, Vox senior correspondent Emily Stone just published an article cleverly titled The Problem Isn't Inflation, It's Prices. Stone delivers the article much like a sage, graciously dispensing wisdom from on high, illuminating the darkness of ignorant people still frustrated that groceries and other basic goods are so expensive. But all of us laymen... Feel the reality in our bones. Prices are high because of inflation. Prices across industries could not have risen to their bewildering new heights without the sustained spike in inflation rates. It doesn't take a degree in economics to put this together. I'm not sure what response Stone was hoping for with this article, but the distinction between inflation and prices really isn't that illuminating or alleviating. Whether the exorbitant prices are from yesterday's inflation or today's, I'm still paying $8.50 for a latte, and my dollar still doesn't go nearly as far as it did even just a year or two ago. Inflation might be starting to slow, but are businesses going to start dropping their prices? Not a chance. That's not how it works. It doesn't take an economics degree to realize that once businesses raise the general cost of admission, it will never come back down. Although, I'll dispute that. Actually, it would come back down. Okay, It would come back down. It would have to come back down if you had more competition in the market. That's how that works. If you have more entrance into the marketplace from various alternative sources for either a good or a service, if there is a fairly flat level of demand for those goods and services, you will see the competitors for your dollar, for your purchase power, lowering their prices, offering deals to try and get market share. That's how that works. That is actually how you will see prices come down. If the costs for the people who are selling you the products and services, if their costs come down, then so also they will try to outbid one another for your market share, your business. Unless, of course, you can't get new entrance into the marketplace. Unless you have anti-competitive dynamics and forces in your market, say for instance, because of regulation or because the barrier to entry requires permitting or a lot of capital and capital is scarce. Those kinds of things will keep new players from joining the game of competing for your business or competing for your dollar. But then that's why it is not just a matter of spend less money, stop putting new dollars into circulation. It's also a factor of lower the permitting requirements for things, stop requiring permits for everything, stop requiring licenses for everything, reduce taxes, reduce regulation. You will see more available capital going into people starting new businesses, expanding their businesses into new markets, competing with one another. But nevertheless, back to Anthropos over at Not Be. I love the name, by the way. Great. Very good. Man. <laughs> Anthropos. <sighs> Reading this article felt like going to the doctor and being told my suffering isn't actually from a peanut allergy, like I suspected, but from a shellfish allergy, and then the doctor hoping I feel relieved about my breakout of full-body hives. Very helpful. Yes. According to The Economist, Stone cites in her article, people who are still frustrated with inflation and high prices, are trapped in a pre-2019 reality. In so many words, Stones and her economist friend's solution is to get used to the new normal. So not only do I have hives from shellfish, not peanuts, thank you, God, but the hives aren't going anywhere and there's no cure. So about this. Half the reason I bring this to you is because I'm angry about inflation and how much more expensive Everything is. I've got a big family. We just welcomed the birth of our eighth son, our ninth child last week. And it's expensive. It is expensive to buy the groceries and to keep the lights on and to keep everybody clothed and (laughs) active, you know, doing the things that they need to do. It's more and more difficult as inflation erodes the purchase power of my dollar. And I'm angry about that. So yeah, that's part of the draw here. But notice the first word of this post over at Not To Be. The first word is liberal. What does that mean that this journalist, so-called over at Vox, senior correspondent Emily Stone, is liberal? What do we mean by that? Do we know what differentiates, what actually classifies somebody or something as liberal? Honest question. I think many of us don't know. We just have a certain fuzzy notion, a certain fuzzy feeling relative who we perceive to be more conservative or may may I, if I may, those who line up more with the Black Lives Matter, social justice, wokeness, critical race theory, gender theory side of things, on the one hand, we say those are the liberal folks. And then on the other hand, we say, if you're opposed to all of that, you're conservative. We will need to clear up our definitions of these things. As we get to Patrick Deneen's book talking about why liberalism failed, we'll have to know what liberalism is in the first place to know how it failed, why it failed, Has the definition changed? Are different people using this term in different ways? Right here is a great example of how, from the jump, the very first word of the post sets your expectations. You find out this is a liberal journalist, and many journalists at the leading magazines and newspapers are liberal, by the way. But you find out that they're liberal, and your expectations are such and such. Fill in the blank. You're probably going to get gaslit like this gal was gaslighting her audience. Keep that in mind as we continue on with these other current events items. For example, May Reed Elordi over at The Daily Wire reports October 30th, Denver closing in on $2 billion with a B spent on homelessness since pandemic study shows $2 billion with a B more than $1.9 billion was set aside for homelessness spending, which comes to about $30,000 to $60,000 per person, the study found. Meanwhile, the homeless population in Denver is ballooning. The number of homeless people in the Denver metro area has risen 58% from 5,728 in 2016 to 9,065 in 2023, a rise of about 58%, the study found. Denver now ranks 10th In the nation for the highest number of homeless people, according to the study, quote, it's a public policy challenge that dominated the election season and generated conversations in neighborhoods across the state. And rightfully so, this is an issue that pulls at our heartstrings and challenges our compassion. End quote. Kelly Caulfield, executive director at the Common Sense Institute, said in a statement. In July, when Denver Mayor Mike Johnston, not to be confused with Speaker of the House Mike Johnson, Although there's only a T between. (laughs) When Mike Johnston took office, he declared a state of emergency on homelessness and promised to house 1,000 homeless people by the end of the year. Last month, Denver police investigated allegations of a pop-up bar selling alcohol at a homeless encampment in the city, along with complaints about tents being rented out for prostitution. Photos of the pop-up bar showed dozens of liquor bottles displayed on shelves, along with a cooler, cushioned chairs, a chase lounge, couches, tents, and AstroTurf flooring. Large umbrellas provided shade, and dozens of empty liquor bottles were reportedly visible as well. Police also investigated complaints about tents and couches being rented out for prostitution. Other large cities have also been struggling with a persistent homeless problem and the drug use and crime that often go hand in hand. San Francisco has been in the throes of a homelessness crisis for years now, and it has only gotten worse since before the pandemic. About 38,000 people are homeless in the Bay Area on a given night. That's up 35% since 2019. More than 7,000 people are homeless in San Francisco itself. Businesses have fled San Francisco's downtown, where foot traffic has thinned in part due to the homeless issue. In Los Angeles, Homelessness is up 10% this year, according to the 2023 Greater Los Angeles Homeless count results in the city of Los Angeles itself. The number of homeless people jumped to about 46,260 people in the broader area of Los Angeles County, the homeless population rose to about 75,518 people. Now, about this, if you were to guess, just using common usage, common meaning of our terms conservative and liberal. If you were to guess whether these kinds of problems more typically correspond to or disproportionately correspond to cities that are conservative or cities that are liberal, what would you say? Of course, you would say, this is more of a problem for liberal cities. Is it a cause or is it an effect? We would say as conservatives I'm a conservative, I'm an independent, but I'm a conservative, we would say clearly this corresponds more to liberal cities and it is not necessarily all an effect, but it is by and large an effect of liberalism. In the way that we are liberal today, we have homeless people growing in number, growing in concentration. It's more of a frequent issue. We're talking tens of thousands of homeless people in large cities, right? There's a lot of people overall. And so you're going to have, with whatever problem it is, you're going to have higher numbers just by virtue of there being a lot of people. But then the number of people in the tens of thousands, that's enough to make sizable new towns and cities somewhere else. If there's not enough housing, if there's not enough in the way of services or economic opportunity in these cities, why are tens of thousands of homeless people still there? Is there not somewhere else for them to go? It would seem to me as though this goes hand in hand with decreasing economic opportunity across the country, more so in certain states, in certain regions, but definitely across the country, across the U.S. Decreasing economic opportunity that corresponds to fewer jobs or the jobs don't pay as well or the minimum requirements to get and hold those jobs has increased, but also more importantly, the incentives in place for not working. You don't have to work in order to get fed or even to be sheltered when the weather gets really, really bad. You don't have to get after it. You don't have to roll up your sleeves and go get to work. You can live off of public assistance in where more liberal places, and so there's a there's an incentive, right? There's an incentive that has been set up by many liberals for continuing to be uh, <laughs> worthless. <laughs> I'm sorry, but that's what homelessness is. You're not going to find very many, if any, homeless people. Who have a high net worth and they just choose to not have a residence. They just choose to live on the streets. These are worthless people, and I mean that literally, from a dollars and cents standpoint, from a property standpoint, they're worthless. They're worthless people who are able to subsist, they're able to eat and get the necessities taken care of at least enough to offset what would be the relative cost to them. In being disciplined, in expending their physicality, their physical energy, in applying their attention, in giving their time, giving their attention to somebody who would say, here, I want you to do this work and serve us. Essentially, what you have is with homelessness, in my view, as homelessness increases, you should understand that what's driving that is selfishness. It's selfishness on the part of the homeless person who says, I don't want to work in many cases, or it's selfishness on the part of the homeless person who says, I want to do drugs. I want to be an alcoholic. I don't want to serve somebody else. I just want to serve myself. That's all a factor of selfishness. You could say mental health is a factor, but then is that a cause or is that an effect? Do people suffer from major mental health issues? And then that leads them to substance abuse, that leads them to joblessness, that leads them to homelessness. Maybe in some cases, but then I would say when you see a dramatic increase, it's not because there's a dramatic increase in the genetic conditions, which you have as mental health declining as people are exposed to abuse from other selfish people, or they suffer the consequences for their own selfishness. But then that also is of a piece with Patrick Denine's subject in Why Liberalism Failed dramatic increases, double-digit percentage increases over just a few short years, $2 billion spent to take care of homeless people in the city of Denver since the pandemic. All of that is a cost for the liberal ideal, liberal anthropology, liberal theology, more to the point. What do we believe about God? What do we believe about man? How do we incentivize and reward Certain things while also penalizing other things, and what are the effects? It's not just a mental health issue. And even insofar as it is a mental health issue, is that upstream? Is that downstream? That's what we have to be considering if we're going to do anything about it, not just throw more and more money at it until the money runs out. But let's think about economics for a moment and what is it? I was just recently talking with my wife, Lauren, about Thomas Sowell's book, Basic Economics, which some of our older sons are reading for school this year. And therefore, also, my wife is reading Basic Economics by Thomas Sowell. And I was talking with her and asking her some questions because I haven't read that book by Sowell. I've read several others. I haven't read that one just yet. I was asking her a few questions and she was like, yeah, I don't really remember. I don't know. I've had a hard time getting into Basic Economics. And I said, well, okay, but... Why do you think that is? And so then we're asking questions and we're trying to figure out, okay, what's the disconnect? Why do so many people, not just my wife, why do so many people find economics to be boring and irrelevant? This is useless information, very abstract. I don't understand. I don't get it. Why do I need to know this? What am I going to do with this information? And an article I had just recently seen in The Blaze, an opinion piece actually, by Helen Roy from November 3rd. Came to mind, and I shared it with my wife. And I said, Well, here, consider this. The Root of Economics is No Dismal Science helped my wife, along with the conversation that we had about what is really economics, anyways. What's the root? What's the basis of it? This helped my wife to appreciate Basic Economics by Thomas Sowell. Here's the subtitle Economics once meant household management, and don't forget, home is the first place where we learn to be human. As Helen Roy begins her article, and I'll just read this for you. It's not a long one, but it's worth your time. One of my favorite rhetorical techniques is when speakers get to the bottom of an idea through etymology, she writes. At a wedding I attended over the weekend, the priest explained the meaning of sincerity. During the Renaissance, Spanish sculptors who made mistakes while carving expensive marble often patched their flaws with Sarah, wax. A statue that had no flaws and required no patching was hailed as a sculpture sine sera, a sculpture without wax. The phrase eventually came to mean anything honest or true. Sine sera, sincerity. The other morning I was reading the transcript of Erica Bakayoki's incisive remarks for the Intercollegiate Studies Institute's American Economic Forum when it struck me that economics, a field that historically has dealt heavily in abstraction, could use this kind of clarity. The word economy is derived from the ancient Greek word oikonomos, oiko, house, and nomos, rule, or law. In short, the word once meant household management. Bakioki writes, quote, that our economics and politics will reap The dividends of investing in social capital gives the impression that human sociality is merely instrumental to econometric or democratic ends. But that framing doesn't get human nature quite right, it seems to me. And the question of nature is an essential starting place for conservatives. For though we certainly aren't looking, as progressives are, to create out of whole cloth the ideal regime, we do want to orient our politics and economics toward the real goods of human flourishing. Too often, policymakers think in terms of the individual, the market, and the state. And even if mediating institutions are remembered, as with Robert Putnam, it's not the work of nurture and care in the family that has given pride of place in our political imagination. No, that work, that work of the private sphere has been far too often taken for granted. But if human beings really are to flourish, then the health of our families where infants are nurtured and both children and their parents are formed must be at the very center of our politics and economics, end quote. Now, I'll just pause right there. And before moving on, before continuing on, I want you to just picture. Picture if you have seen her or if you haven't, you can go on over to Instagram if you have an Instagram or you could just do a search for this wife and mother who recently won a beauty pageant. Her name is Hannah, and you can find her on Instagram, at Ballerina Farm. My wife and I both follow her because she's got these great little videos where it's just her and her kids and her husband living on this farm and doing farm things. And as I was just casually scrolling Instagram just a little bit this morning, I came across a video where she was making some kind of bread, some kind of bread from scratch, mixing up the ingredients, making butter from scratch, forming the butter into what looks like not just a more typical bar, but then it has, you know, little flourishes on the top. So it looks nice. It's not just a crude bar of butter that's homemade butter. It's also pretty, right? And she's a beautiful woman. That's why she won Mrs. American 23. They've got seven little kids. They have a hog farm, it looks like. But think about the economics, the home management on display here. It's not just that she's a pretty face. She does have a pretty face. It's not just that she's a beautiful woman. She is a beautiful woman, but she's a beautiful woman in a context, and that is very unusual for our day. This will help you to understand what it is that Paciocchi is writing, what it is that Helen Roy over at The Blaze is talking about. Home management is, as much as anything, what's on display with this Instagram account, Ballerina Farm. She's showing how she manages the home. How is she making bread and butter from scratch with her kids in the mix, helping her here and there, with, in the background, her husband working on the farm or them working together on the farm, both the work part of it, taking care of these animals and also the resting and relaxing and making food part of it. All of it is home management. All of that is oikonomos. That is home management. That is economics. But we don't think of economics in those terms. And that's actually what came up in my conversation with my wife who went to public school from kindergarten all the way through her senior year. That's part of the reason why when we got married, she was like, yeah, we should homeschool. I always wanted to be homeschooled. We should homeschool our kids because she had been in public schools from kindergarten on up. She's like, you know, I'm reading this article and I sent it to her, Helen Roy's article at the Blaze. She says, I'm reading this article and I am feeling (laughs) my public education because this is not the way that it's presented. This is not the way that economics is presented to you in a public school environment. Economics is dry, boring. That's the domain of academics and experts and intellectuals and people who either are in political office, as in they have governmental roles, they have a title, they work in government, they were elected perhaps, or they're the advisors to those people, or they're the folks who are on staff for those people. It's not for people like me. And when the subject is presented to us that way, and it's talked about that way, and then talking about the effect on home management, the strain placed on home management by policies that pull money out of the general economy, the macro economy, the nation's economy, or your state's economy, or the economy of your county, when you talk about how that impacts home management, it's apparent that a lot of the people who do the commentary And they make the decisions. They debate back and forth what would be a good tax rate and why, what would be good policy, what regulations do we need to add to what is already there or repeal from what is already there. You know everything you need to know about the competing visions of how society should be oriented or how we should be making decisions together, which decisions we should be making together and which we should be really making on our own and then enjoying the benefits or suffering the consequences for You know everything you need to know about it when it comes to how confused the Democratic spokespeople and politicians are by lower and lower and lower approval ratings for Joe Biden. As the general economy is doing worse, you have individuals looking at their own balances, looking at their own family's savings, looking at their own retirement funds, looking at their own grocery bills, their own utilities bills. And saying my ability to manage my own finances, my best efforts at managing my own home financially, is it, it's much harder. It's a much more difficult thing now than it was before Biden took office. And if you have a long enough memory and if you've been managing your own household for this long, it's much, much harder than it was before Barack Obama was elected before he became president. It's gotten progressive, yes, progressively more difficult to manage my own affairs because more and more money is pulled out of the economy. More and more dollars are put into circulation that had not been in circulation before to fund the government having a solution for everything. The government regulating everything and then needing to pay the salaries of the people who make sure that the regulations are being abided by or who oversee the permitting process to see whether permits should be approved or rejected, whether we should send people back to the drawing board to make sure that, ah, you were permitted this. Is that what you did? Hmm? Did you? Did you not? On the one hand, you have folks who say, I want to, I need to. It's my responsibility. It's my duty to, not just my freedom to, it's my responsibility before God to manage my own home and to do it well. And I'm trying And on the other hand, you have folks who are saying it's the government's job to manage the economy. That is the biggest difference between so-called liberals and so-called conservatives in our day, honestly. Back to Helen Roy's opinion piece here, though. She writes, the bitterly ironic heartbreak of mothers everywhere is that the places and people in life we most easily take for granted are also the formative ones. In order to be formed in a space by another person, in a certain sense, the space and the person must be taken for granted. That is the nature of a foundation, to support without credit, to provide the stability and permanence that make higher-minded activities possible. Homo economicus does not emerge ex nihilo as a rational being. He was a child who sprang from a womb and was formed by a family, in the words of Katrine Marcal, Adam Smith got his dinner because his mother made sure it was on the table every evening, end quote. One cannot demand gratitude from children for the things they do not yet understand, but just as a parent's duty is to support their children until they understand, it is an adult child's duty to remember his father and mother. I think excessive abstraction in political discourse comes from, but also reinforces and enables, a failure to remember. All forms and technologies of abstraction from offshoring and globalization to the internet have the same flattening effect on the memory. We forget how things are made from the ground up. We forget the mundane exercises and habits that form good things, good friendships, and good society. Excellence. The home is the first place where we learn to be human. It is also a place where memories are formed, stored, and recalled. I think these have something to do with one another. Despite the promise, sometimes fulfilled, of sublime clarity, unbounded abstraction ultimately confuses us about who we are. Bakioki implores conservatives to remember the mothers a la Abigail Adams. If conservatives cannot be motivated by what may resonate as a feminist position, maybe they can remember that patriotism itself springs from the same piety that impels adherence to the fifth commandment. And that is, of course, honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. And of course, she's right. Of course, Helen Roy is right. Of course, Bakioki is right here. More of us need to understand that if we would truly be free. The promise of freedom versus the reality of being less and less free We have to square that, and that too is helpful for us to appreciate why liberalism has failed. For our next story, though, speaking of housewives and speaking of home management, consider ABC's The View. Virginia Cruda reports for The Daily Wire, November 8th. Hitler was duly elected. Hillary Clinton frets the end is near if Trump wins again. I'll play for you. Cut one here. The first audio clip in this episode. Here is former Secretary of State and candidate for President Hillary Clinton speaking with The View about 2024 and the candidacy of Donald Trump. Listen to what she says we should expect if Trump wins, and then I have some comments.
1: What, in your view, would happen if he were to be reelected? Oh, I can't, even, I can't even think that because I think it would be the end of our country as we know it. And I don't say that lightly. You know, I hated losing, and I especially hated losing to him because I had seen so many warning signals during yes. the campaign. But I immediately said, look, we have to give him a chance. We've got to support you know, the president we have, and I meant it. And I tried really hard. And then literally from his inauguration on, it was nothing but, you know, accusing people of things, making up facts, de- mm-hmm. denying the size of the crowd at his own inauguration. And everything that I worried about, I saw unfolding. And so I, I think that he'd be even worse now yeah. because he was somewhat restrained, believe it or not, wow. in, in the first term by people who he hired Mm -hmm. because he thought they would go along with him and they stood up to him Mm -hmm. and so now he is going to if he were ever near the oval office again find people who have no principles no conscience who are totally tied Mm. you know to his fortunes literally Mm -hmm. and therefore would do whatever he said and so the the wreckage is almost unimaginable you know when i was secretary of state i used to talk about one and done. And what I meant by that is that people would get legitimately elected mm-hmm. and then they would try to do away with elections yeah. and do away with opposition yeah. and do away with a free press. And you could see it in countries where, well, Hitler was mm-hmm. duly elected. That's right. Right. Yeah. And so all of a sudden, somebody with those tendencies, those dictatorial, authoritarian tendencies would be like, oh, OK, we're going to shut this down. We're going to throw these people in jail. And, and they didn't usually telegraph that. Trump is telling us yes. what he yes. intends to right. do. To listen. Yes, take that. him at his word. Yes. The man <laughs> means to throw people in jail who disagree with him, yeah. shut down legitimate press right. outlets, do yeah. what he can to literally undermine the rule of law and our country's values. He will use the military to stop protesters.
0: Okay, now let's just <clears throat> take a moment to unpack what we just heard. Hillary Clinton, notwithstanding, let's just set her aside for a moment and not get into the nitty gritty of her backstory and how rich some of the things she's claiming she said or claiming happened, how she's characterizing. Let's just set that aside for a moment and let's set aside the credibility of The View as a show, the hosts of The View, the kinds of things that they routinely will say or how they will treat different guests, depending on their politics, set all of that aside, put all of that aside for just a moment. And let's think about economics for just a moment. And let's consider this two minutes, 15 seconds I played for you in light of what we were just reading from Helen Roy at the blaze or what we were talking about before that with Denver spending $2 billion since the pandemic, since 2020 on the problem of homelessness in the Denver metro area. The economic reality is that the home is not thought of chiefly by these women as where the economy is built. They don't believe that. They don't believe that. And you know that they don't believe that because of how they conduct themselves, how they talk about the issues. Not all of them. They typically will have somebody who is more conservative than the rest and then they pile on when she says something that they really want to make an example of for the viewers at home. But you have women who are watching, for instance, it's primarily women who are watching this, except for when they say something really outrageous, and then it gets embedded in a tweet, and (laughs) we start talking about it on my podcast, for instance. Otherwise, we don't really watch this as men. This is not a show that men watch. This is primarily a show for women who are at home. But they have this show on, And these women are talking about the economy, but they're talking about the economy as something that is figured out and sorted out by policies and tax rates and government programs. And that really is why we have the homelessness problem that we do, that's why liberalism has failed as well. That the homelessness issue is because there aren't, one, enough homes. And I don't just mean that for the adults, who are on the streets now that there aren't enough homes for them to move into. A lot of those homeless folks maybe would be not keeping a home. If they were all of a sudden given a home and put in it, they wouldn't necessarily want to stay in that home or they wouldn't be able to maintain it or they wouldn't keep it up because, you know, if they're not willing to work, they can't continue to keep the lights on or they can't repair the home or they can't whatever. But I'm talking about the people who are homeless now having grown up without Somebody managing the home. And, and what I mean by that is a lot of those homeless folks, I think if you went back and you looked at their story, look at their family of origin. Look at was there somebody in their home growing up managing the home holistically and not just talking you know, dollars and cents, but like the Adam Smith reference in Helen Roy's piece, At the Blaze. Adam Smith, when he was a child, had something to eat because his mom made sure that there was dinner on the table for instance, for example, was somebody managing the homes for these homeless people in such a way that they would want to be in a home. They know what a home is and it's an attractive thing. It's a self-evident good in life to have a home. A lot of these homeless folks, I would say most of these homeless folks, if not all of these homeless folks, grew up homeless even if they were housed. And in fact, the home was so poorly managed, it was managed so badly and so unpleasantly, so abusively or negligently that when they grew up and when they had decisions to make for themselves, it was not preferable that they would be in a house because maybe they associate being in a house with trauma, with neglect, with abuse. And so in comparison to being abused in a house, they think, well, let's try not being in a house. Maybe it's being in a house. Maybe maybe if being part of a family is how you get abused, you get beat up on, you get verbally torn down all the time, constantly on a regular basis, you get told you're awful and I wish you'd never been born and you can't do anything right or whatever. If that's the kind of thing that you associate with being in a family and being in a house and being in a home, so to speak, You'd be better off without it. And that's the calculation that most of these people, if not all of these homeless people have made, but why? Okay, Go back a generation to when these now adults who are homeless were children, what were their mothers doing? Might I just propose to you that liberalism convinced several generations of women in America, successive generations of women in America, that... It was a waste of their potential. If they were in the House presiding over children, they were bitter about it. They were bitter like Hillary Clinton is bitter about not having become President of the United States in 2016. They were bitter about not getting that professional attainment and not having that autonomous individual liberty, so-called, anymore. Maybe they had it right before they got married, and that's part of the reason why they were upset at being a mother. Now they didn't get an abortion and maybe they regretted that that later, or maybe they did get several abortions and then they had a child and didn't deport that child. And then they regretted being saddled with the responsibility and they acted like it and they talked like it and they didn't manage the home in such a way that they sold the goodness, the inherent goodness and preference that we should have and feel and recognize in being in a home and being in a family. What Hillary Clinton is talking about with regards to Trump is rich. And again, I'm not going to waste time working through all of the very dishonest things that she just said. I'm, I'm just not. It would be a waste of breath. It would be very frustrating. And for what, right? If you know, you know, and if you don't, then you're you're probably just going to be angry with me about the particulars. So just take a step back from talking about Hillary Clinton and the view, please. When we're thinking in a big, scaled-up, philosophical way about competing views of man, competing views of God, yes, but competing views of man that stem from alternative orientations towards our Creator, especially, specifically, the God of Christianity, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Christ of the Gospels in our New Testament, When you have competing views of God, theology, and you have competing views of man, anthropology, you will also have competing views of woman and a woman's place, or the role of the home or the importance of home management. And what I would suggest to you, if not just outright promising you that this is the case, what I would suggest to you is that the women who are sitting up there on the view, speaking to women at home who find these to be relatable figures or aspirational models after a fashion, you know, not talking about the folks who are just morbidly curious. Oh, what are they talking about now? What are they going to say next? You know, (laughs) it's like watching a horror movie. Those people notwithstanding, the folks who see the ladies on The View as credible sources of information and commentary, they have a competing view to what the Bible presents as to the importance and the value of home management. As in, they see it as more glorious, more impactful, more meaningful, more significant, more effective, more glorious, that a woman would manage the economy, so to speak, from the White House, or comment on the economy, on the view, versus a woman managing the economy from her home, in relation to her husband and her children. That is all the difference in the world as to what kind of people will make the decision. Do I work? Do I go out and get a job and have an employer who's potentially going to treat me in ways that are reminiscent of the way my mother treated me or the way my father treated me? Am I going to go through that again now that I'm traumatized when my employer talks to me that way or tells me to do this or treats me this way? It reminds me of my mother. It reminds me of my father. And I just I don't want that. It's not worth all the money in the world. And then what, right? I get a family and I have no idea how a family is supposed to be healthy. So I self-medicate. I take drugs. I drink. I use one of these pop-up bars or, you know, prostitution tents in Denver. And I live off of public assistance because that's how I cope. That's better, right? That's preferable. Those adults are formed in homes where Home management is seen as a prison sentence, is seen as something like purgatory or as punishment for having not stayed in school, having not gotten an abortion, having gotten married, having settled down. These women believe, and they were brainwashed into believing, I think they've been hoodwinked, they've been tricked into believing that this is unfair. This is a waste of their potential. They're wasting their lives. When they treat their children that way, And when successive generations, several generations successively of American women have treated their children this way, what you get is what we have about half the country thinking that the government is our best solution to fixing the economy instead of believing that the economy is going to succeed or fail in the home, first and foremost, chiefly, in marriages being successful, in the relationship of fathers and mothers to their children being a God-honoring one. This, too, is why liberalism has failed. But let's move on to another piece over at The Blaze. This one, November 3rd, Carlos Garcia is bringing us the news in the form of a question. Is House Speaker releasing January 6th footage to Blaze News? Rep. Anna Paulina Luna appears to confirm the report. We won't spend as much time on this. I just bring it to your attention because here again, we have competing views of God and man, and specifically competing views of the role of government relative to the governed. When this upsets some people greatly. One, that Mike Johnson is Speaker of the House at all when he says his worldview is the Bible. But then also two, that as Speaker of the House, he would. Give the January 6th tapes to the blaze when that upsets some people because that is undermining our democracy. That's a a threat to our democracy that we would know what actually happened on January 6th and be able to talk about it and see the images, see the footage for ourselves. That those people are upset and other people like myself welcome this news and we say that's really good and that's important to us having an informed decision even possible to make relative Who we vote for, who we vote against, how we persuade the people who are in the middle who just want mom and dad to stop fighting. Can I propose to you that because the liberals have, the progressives have used our public education system modeled after what was public schooling, compulsory government schooling in Prussia under Frederick the Great, because they have used the public schools for over a century now to transfer traditional and very natural affections that children would have for their parents to transfer those affections to the state. When you get somebody like Mike Johnson, Speaker of the House, not Mike Johnston, Denver Mayor, but Mike Johnson, Speaker of the House, saying that his worldview is basically the Bible, for a lot of these folks, what it has been turned into, what it's been spun like, what they hear is that here is uh, another boyfriend, uh, you know, another guy that dad is being replaced by. My mom is dating somebody new, and this guy's a religious nut, and he's going to come in, and he's going to say, "I can't, you know, play video games all day. I can't play Xbox all day. I need to go get a job." And oh, I hate that guy, right? He's such a hypocrite. He goes to church. He reads the Bible. He's always on about Jesus and about morality. And he's always telling me that it's not good that I'm looking at porn or I'm fascinated by violent, gruesome imagery in my entertainment, or that I talk the way that I talk or that I'm smoking marijuana, whatever, fill in the blank. What the liberals who have transposed their traditional filial piety onto the government, thanks to or blamed to government schooling, what they hear is mommy's new boyfriend is going to blow the lid on our misbehavior. I I think that's what it is. They might say, oh, nothing happened, right? Why are you looking in there? Right? Don't go in there. Man, this is so unfair. Like, don't open my closet. Don't look under my bed. Don't look at my browser history. Don't, you know, no, you can't have my phone to look at my text messages back and forth. You're not my real dad. You know, they might say all that kind of stuff, but really what it is, is they know that they're guilty of sin and they don't want Somebody telling them, no, you can't do that. No, that's not okay. No, that's not how these things work. Think with me just for a moment, and then we'll come back to the present, about 2 Samuel chapter 4. Abner is murdered, okay? A bad thing happens. Everybody knows that this is a bad thing that's happened. David mourns. David's really upset. All Israel is very troubled. By the death of Abner, Ishbosheth loses all of his courage. Because why? Because Abner was the guy... Even though he wasn't the king, everybody knew that Abner was the power behind the throne. With Abner gone, now anything could happen to Ishbosheth, and very shortly, he is assassinated. Sure enough, he's killed by two of the captains of his own raiding parties, no less. They go in, and they murder him, and they cut off his head, and they take his head to his chief rival, who is David in Hebron, king over Judah. David does not welcome that at all. In fact, he has those men put to death. And then he gives something approaching a respectful, proper burial for Ishbosheth's disembodied head in the tomb of Abner, no less, which is poetic and it's sad in its way, but fitting. But think about what happens, what's so scary about the death of Abner? It's that Abner is the power behind the throne, he's the reason that Ishbosheth is king in the first place. He's the one who anointed Ishbosheth. Now fast forward again to the present, come back with me to making sense of if Mike Johnson gives January 6th footage to the blaze. And let's suppose the blaze combs through thousands and thousands of hours of video, surveillance camera videos, and they find smoking guns that show the equivalent of Abner in our day, in our governmental system, actually made the whole thing up. Not that The protesters weren't there. They were there. Not that they weren't actually all mostly Trump supporters upset about what they believed was a rigged election and a stolen election. No, no, no. Mark that safe from being disputed. But that Abner, the equivalent of Abner, in the folks who oversee security at the Capitol or who present us with our news coverage of these sorts of things, the equivalent of Abner, the real power behind whoever is actually in the equivalent of the kingship in our day, this case being the presidency, the White House, Abner is found to have set the whole thing up. It was made for TV. The folks who were doing the most violent things and inciting the protesters to vandalize, to trespass, to commit acts of violence, those folks were actually federal agents those folks were actually Abner's men, so to speak, if you will. Then what? Then Abner is brought to account. And what terrifies, I believe, the liberal Democrats, so-called, although we need to be careful about how we use the term liberal, what terrifies the liberal Democrats is that Abner, if you follow the sequence of events, the chain of events will be, the dominoes falling will be, Abner is found guilty of having rigged January 6th to look like an insurrection, but it was actually Abner's guys who were vandalizing and committing acts of violence and inciting the crowd. Abner then is removed from the equation. He gets investigated, he gets charged, he gets prosecuted, he gets sentenced, and now with a cleaning of the house, Abner no longer is the power behind the throne, is no longer protecting the figureheads and I believe Biden is a very similar sort of a character to Ishbosheth. I don't think he's actually the one in charge. He's just the guy whose name people know. He's a familiar face, a familiar name of that ilk. They're afraid that if Abner is removed from the equation, Ishbosheth will no longer be king. That's the equivalent concern. And so they have to call it misinformation, disinformation, malinformation. They have to claim that this is a national security issue. What they really mean is this is the security of their regime at stake, the legitimacy of their regime as opposed to their rival's re-election campaign. That's what it is. And the liberals growing up in broken homes taught by the government schools to transfer filial piety, that is the natural inclination to abide by the fifth commandment honor your father and your mother. They've been taught to transfer that to the state. They see this as, yes, actually a threat to our democracy. And by that, they would mean their liberal wish fulfillment uh, schema, paradigm, right? It's not a threat to our democracy. It's a threat to the Democrat Party and everything it's promised generation after generation of kids growing up in broken homes who don't know how to adult and they don't know how to manage their own homes in fact they've been told leave that to the experts the experts will manage your home because your home is just part of the larger economy and that's all a matter of whatever the federal reserve sets for interest rates we'll figure that out you just keep on voting democrat maybe you stop voting democrat and then they stop providing the illusion that they're the best ones to manage the economy and then maybe just maybe the terrifying thing is Y'all have been wrong all along that that's how the economy functions. And actually, actually, it turns out the economy is built in homes all over this country by moms who make sure that there's dinner on the table for the kids and who kiss scraped elbows and put band-aids on skinned knees. Moms who make sure their kids get a good education. Moms who make sure their kids have their hair cut and combed and their faces washed before they go hang out with their friends. But then this too is why liberalism has failed. That even to jeopardize the narrative is called a threat to our democracy and then any means are justified in the minds of the people who are defending the so-called democracy, so long as the end insight is to protect the liberal democracy that the godless have in mind and have come to expect and depend on. But then that brings us to this article I said I was going to talk with you about, that my neighbor two houses down, J.P. Chavez, I'm also his neighbor, two houses down, by the way. (laughs) That's how it works. (laughs) It's a two-way street, not a one-way street, and no dead ends, which is nice. My neighbor two houses down, J.P. Chavez, God bless him. He sent me this piece written and published, it looks like, November 8th. Probably written before November 8th, but published November 8th at solaeclasia.org. No relation to Ecclesia Forum, by the way, except that the Ecclesia is the church. We do have that in common. Brian Laughlin and Doug Ponder are the authors. And the title is Christianity and Functional Liberalism, or How Evangelicalism Denies the Faith. A very eye-catching title a very well-written article that we do not have time to go through in depth in this episode. Maybe I'll come back to it. I'd like to come back to it and give it a fuller treatment soon. For the sake of time in this episode, I'll just put the link in the description for this podcast episode. You check it out. You read the whole thing because it's well worth the full treatment. It really is. But for now, I just want to, before we get into talking about Patrick Deneen's book, I want to read for you one section under the heading Christianity and functional liberalism. The authors have talked a bit about Andy Stanley and the brouhaha over his having an LGBTQI plus plus double plus bad friendly uh, conference or convention at his church hosting that, hosting two gay men who claim that they're married to each other, hosting them to speak, welcoming and encouraging the whole evangelical church in America to welcome and affirm and love and endorse and embrace the so-called self-identifying gay Christians, lesbian Christians, gender non-conforming Christians, so-called. I say so-called because it's oxymoronic. It's a contradiction in terms. Andy Stanley is, uh, he's, he's doing the work of a false teacher and a false prophet. No two ways about it. They talk about that. But in this section, where they get into Christianity and functional liberalism, they have some really good things to say, which will help us to set the stage for appreciating Patrick Deneen's work. They write, whereas Machen wrote about Christianity and liberalism, we are writing something of an appendix on Christianity and functional liberalism. Liberalism. We call it functional liberalism and not liberalism simpliciter because, unlike the threat of Machen's day, this strain of the virus does not share the same set of symptoms, even if it has a similar underlying cause. Macken's liberals were modernists who openly denied the accuracy of the scriptures, the reality of the supernatural, the necessity of the atonement, and the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. As E.J. Pace's famous cartoon illustrated in 1922, liberal departure from the faith often happened in stages, with the truthfulness of the Bible being the first to go. A few such liberals are still around, but those who hold to the faith once for all, delivered to the saints, Jude 3, are, thanks in large part to Machin and his heirs, not tempted to regard them as part of the body of Christ, 1 John 2.19. The problem we face today is of a slightly different sort. If liberalism entailed an overt denial of core Christian doctrines, the essence of functional liberalism is consent to doctrinal confessions on paper while subverting them in practice whether by downplaying their significance, reinterpreting their meaning, or rejecting the logical implications. We are not the first to make this observation somewhere in the annals of D.A. Carson's prodigious output. He gave a lecture in which he issued a strong warning along these lines. The future of liberalism in the American church will not look like it did a century ago. Conservative seminaries and churches will not see brazen denials of the core doctrines that were the battleground of yesteryear. Instead, they will see people who claim to affirm the doctrines while undermining them through subtle but substantial reinterpretation. At least the old liberals had the courage to say, the Bible is false, the Trinity is bunk, Jesus isn't divine, the cross wasn't substitutionary, and the resurrection didn't happen. The new liberals, that is the functional liberals, are worse in this critical respect. They claim to agree with the faith once for all delivered to the saints, while simultaneously reinterpreting its doctrines into meaningless statements, or else ignoring the same as they press ahead with whatever they want to do. End quote. Yes, 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 yes. And oh, by the way, if it is a pet peeve of yours, how people pronounce Jake Gresham, <clears throat> fill in the blanks name. I I need to break the habit. I keep saying mockin'. I'm reading it how it reads to me, how it looks like it should be said. But apparently it's supposed to be Machin. So my bad, my bad. It's a habit. It's like a tick or muscle memory at this point. I practiced to say it wrong. And now it's going to be difficult to break the habit, but what they say here, what Brian Laughlin and Doug Ponder at Sola Ecclesia are getting at is what I have seen. I have seen this on paper. Our doctrinal statement says this, what we profess. Yes, absolutely. We're all about the gospel, but it's doctrinal minimalism when it comes to life and practice for the saints when it comes to actually doing anything with what we say we believe, that's when feathers get ruffled. That's when toes get stepped on. That's when people start to act all offended. And that's when they backpedal really hard and really fast. In my experience, you start talking about the practical implications of here's what the scriptures say. You say that you believe the scriptures are God's revealed word. You say that they're authoritative, but you don't obey and you don't want to obey. And it's not that you just forgot because I know this when I say, oh, wait a second, you know what we forgot to do? We forgot to do what Jesus told us to do, or we forgot to do what God commanded in Scripture. You say that sort of a thing, and then all of a sudden it's like, well, you know, but not everybody's on board with that, and that'll be really upsetting, and some people will get offended, and they might stop coming, and all of a sudden, we have a form of godliness, but we deny its power, and all of a sudden, we honor God with our lips, and our hearts are far from us. And how do I know that? Because Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. You say that you believe in God. There is one God. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. And are you the wise man who builds his house on the rock? That is the question at the root of functional liberalism. Functional liberalism is real. (laughs) This is real. What they are talking about here at Sola Ecclesia. This is so important that we know you can't just look at the doctrinal statement and you can't just look at, okay, what do they claim to believe? Look at what they do. Jesus says a very similar thing, by the way, with regards to the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees. He says that you should listen to what they say, but don't do as they do because they don't do what they say. They don't practice what they preach. They're hypocrites. That is to say, functional liberalism is a new variant on hypocrisy, on the hypocrisy of the religious establishment in Jesus' day. It's no temptation that has seized us, but that which is common to man. But God is faithful. And even there where I say, here is how Jesus responded to those people. Here's how he related to them. Here's how he talked to them and about them, even publicly. And if he had had a podcast, I think he would have said, very similar things to what I say, that's why have, that's why I say these sorts of things, how he related to them. As soon as you start to go there, the same functional liberalism will get you the kinds of responses like, well, you're not Jesus though, right? So we believe that's good that Jesus did it, but we don't believe it would be good if you did it. But why, right? But why though? Because you are functional liberals. That's why. You say you believe these things, you say these things are true, but you don't live like it. You don't act like it. And you object when other people live and act like it. You find that threatening. You find that offensive. You find that to be a threat to the equivalent of our democracy in the evangelical church, which is unity very often. Unity, unity, when there is no unity, just like the prophets and the priests of old would say peace, peace, when there was no peace. Unity, unity, when there's no unity. If everybody's just doing whatever they want and then you pour grace on it, that's not unity. Unity has to do in a biblical sense, with unity of purpose as we together are living out the implications of this gospel that was delivered once for all for the saints to believe. That's true unity. It's a false unity. It's a false piety. When we say we believe this and we claim to be so concerned about unity, but then you can't actually get down to brass tacks and the rubber meets the road talking about the practical application of these things without charges of legalism, which is to say As soon as it gets to the practicum, people say, that's just legalism, that's harsh, but then that just proves that they didn't understand it from the jump. They didn't get it from the very beginning, and they were only reading selectively those parts that gave them comfort, that gave them the emotional feeling of closeness to God, the feeling of holiness, the feeling of, I'm right with God. A sense of purpose and belonging actually, really, is what's at stake. That's what they feel is threatened. Whether we're talking about the secular liberals who are voting Democrat and they claim this or that other thing as a threat to our democracy, or we're talking about American evangelicals who are functional liberals claiming that this or that question or point or assertion is a threat to our unity, what it really boils down to is the basis for their purpose and belonging is liberalism. Even before we're all Americans here, or even before we're all Christians here. And how do you know, right? The unity finds a hard stop if you say, hey, we should unify on doing what Jesus said on the practice part. Why, well, you know, okay, great. is great. How about we all unify on faithfulness and calling people to faithfulness? Ooh, that thought had not occurred to them. Why? Because they know, even if they don't have the words for it, even if they would be afraid to admit it, they know that the people who actually control the institutional cohesion, who set the agenda, who write the bylaws and the doctrinal statements and build the websites and oversee the distribution of funds and the teaching schedule and where we're going to have this or that conference. Those people are functional liberals. Those people will not get on board with this. So they know before you go down that road, just know this is not going to go to a good place. These people are not going to be responsive. But then that is to say that it's a vote of no confidence that due process is still with us. Due process might result in some convictions for people who pretend at virtue, pretend at faithfulness, and it's hypocrisy, and it's false virtue. And oh, by the way, this explains exactly why even a lot of so-called supposed conservative Christians are just as anxious about House Speaker Mike Johnson saying that his worldview is the Bible. They're just as anxious about that and uncomfortable with that as the honest liberals are, the honest secular liberals are. They're just as uncomfortable with that. Ooh, is that appropriate? I don't know. There's just something about that I don't like. They're just as uncomfortable because they are functional liberals. And while they might say, yes, I like that, his worldview is the Bible, so is mine. They'll then redefine all the terms and they'll say, yeah, but his worldview really can't be the Bible if he is legislating morality, if he's telling people what is good and what's not good, or if he is acting like what the Bible says is true and good should have a practical necessity effect on what he actually does. What is threatening about that is that he would actually put these things into practice. That's the scary thing. It's not at all threatening if you say you believe these things and you never do anything with it. Well, then people just laugh and they joke and they write you off and they say, yeah, this joker, right? What a loser. What a waste of time that is. People don't feel threatened if you say you believe these things, but you never actually do anything with the beliefs. What scares people is when they actually think you mean it, when you say you believe these things, and they actually expect you to do something with those beliefs. But let's skip forward. Let's skip to the very end, actually, of this piece, because like I said, I can't go through the entire article in the time that I have in this episode, so I'll just read for you the last two paragraphs of the Soul Ecclesia piece by Brian Laughlin and Doug Ponder. They write, Likewise, because functional liberalism detests claims to authority, that do not leave the ultimacy of the individual intact. They turn gospel-centered theology into gospel-only theology. The technical term for this is antinomianism, and in one sense, some form antinomianism has been around since the beginning. See also Romans 6.1. But these days, we encounter many Christians who think mere calls to obedience as legalism or moralism. They forget that sin is lawlessness, 1 John 3, 4, and that Christ came to save us from lawlessness, Titus two fourteen, and for the obedience of faith, Romans 1, 5, Galatians 6, 2. Hence, Christ says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments, John 14, 15, the attractiveness of antinomianism to functional liberals is obvious if Christianity is only the gospel without also including the moral law, that is, in accordance with the gospel, 1 Timothy 1, 8-11, then a functional liberal can dismiss those pesky texts that govern our conduct. In other words, the commands regarding gender and sexuality would be gone. And in their place, we'd find only the good news that God loves us and doesn't care a lick about what we do. In the final analysis, perhaps the label functional liberalism is not clear enough. We've used it to connect the modern error with an old problem. In truth, however, functional liberalism is simply an evangelical progressivism that hasn't yet realized what it is or where it's headed. For every attempt to develop the doctrine in all the ways the Pope and the Archbishop and the many Andy Stanleys of the world are currently doing is really an attempt to move ahead or go beyond what the scriptures say into, it is hoped, some ephemeral land of sovereign individuals who live together in non-judgmental bliss. Whether evangelicals do this subconsciously, out of embarrassment for ideas that are now out of fashion, or whether they do Self-consciously, in the hopes of being more winsome to the world, the result is eventually the same. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. Proverbs fourteen twelve. For everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God, Second John 9. End quote. This is heavy, I know. This is uncomfortable. I get it. But what is heavier still is the wrath of God. And what is heavier still is a false sense that you are living the Christian life all the while this nagging suspicion that this just doesn't feel like it matches. I'll let you work that out, your own salvation in fear and trembling with the good Lord. But I'll say this right here This is true. This is true. What they are pointing out, it's very important that we would understand the difference between gospel-centered theology and gospel-only theology. Gospel-only theology may claim to a kind of unity, but when you want to filter out everything else in scripture, and you want to tune out everything else in scripture, and just focus on a very narrowly defined gospel, you probably don't have even that gospel. Actually, you probably don't even believe just that gospel because you're actually not believing the God whose gospel that is, the Christ whose gospel that is about, when you reject the rest of scripture. There may be reasons, several different reasons. One, you think you're being winsome. And I've heard that. I've seen that so often. People think they're being winsome. See also the Seeker Friendly Movement. It could be that you are just embarrassed, right? You're embarrassed. You're ashamed of the gospel. So you compromise, try and sweep under the rug the stuff that's objected to that would get you unpersoned, unfriended, possibly fired, possibly hauled into court. It could be, it's entirely subconscious and you're just going with the crowd. You put too much stock in what you read in the latest trendy Christian book, what you hear in the latest Christian radio interview with a recording artist, you're just going with the flow. Any dead thing, as G.K. Chesterton once said, any dead thing can go with the flow. It takes a living thing to swim against it. Remember that. For the sake of time, though, let's delve into a review of Why Liberalism Failed by Patrick J. Deneen. Release date, May 22nd, 2018. At a length of six hours and 43 minutes, Why Liberalism Failed Publisher Summary from audible.com, where I listened to it, reads as follows. Has liberalism failed because it has succeeded? Of the three dominant ideologies of the 20th century, fascism, communism, and liberalism, only the last remains. I would dispute that there's no more of the previous two, by the way. But in a big way, you have communism over in China. You definitely have liberalism, liberal democracy as the dominant ideology in the world. Anyway, back to the publisher summary. Sorry. This has created a peculiar situation in which liberalism's proponents tend to forget that it is an ideology and not the natural end state of human political evolution. As Patrick Deneen argues in this provocative book, liberalism is built on a foundation of contradictions. It trumpets equal rights while fostering incomparable material inequality. Its legitimacy rests on consent, yet it discourages civic commitments in favor of privatism. And in its pursuit of individual autonomy, it has given rise to the most far-reaching comprehensive state system in human history. Here, Deneen offers an astringent warning that the centripetal forces now at work on our political culture are not superficial flaws, but inherent features of a system whose success is generating its own failure. Now, it would be interesting, by the way, that read, it would be interesting how differently this book would have been presented had it been published just a few short years later with a view to the COVID pandemic response in the liberal democratic world. In liberal democratic United States of America, we see perhaps possibly the fulfillment of the claim that liberalism has failed. Why has it failed? Patrick Denine says it has failed. Let's move on to the question of why. In 2018, was everybody in agreement that liberalism has failed? I would say a lot of folks did not believe that liberalism had failed. They would say, similar to how a lot of folks talk about communism, well, it just hasn't been tried properly yet. It's still a great idea. It just hasn't been a properly. It it, it it hasn't been appropriately implemented. That's all, right? Liberalism too. We're still working out the bugs. Yeah, it's it's fine. You know, the the conservatives actually. The conservatives. They're the ones who keep mucking it up. And that's what you'll hear from liberals, very often. If you point to their policies, the liberal policies and what effects they've had, to the extent that they've been implemented, they'll just say, "Well, it hasn't been implemented enough because these conservatives." wouldn't let us spend more money. They wouldn't allow us to do it the way we wanted to. We had to compromise with them. And so therefore, that's why it didn't work. We'll just try again with more money next time. We'll try again with more people. See, that's that's the other thing, right? It's either we didn't have enough money last time, or we didn't have enough people making sure that it was implemented properly, or we had to compromise with people who didn't really believe in liberalism. They're not liberals. They're conservatives. But there's a lot more people, I assure you, in liberal democratic America today who are inclined to agree, yes, liberalism has failed. And we've seen how bad the effects are. They're more inclined to agree that it has failed. And I would say they need to read Patrick Deneen's book to understand better why, right? He was asking the question why, because he was convinced At least back in 2018, that it had failed. We need more people to similarly be asking the question why and reverse engineering a solution. Now, before I talk any more about the book, I want to skip on over to Goodreads, which is a great little site for bibliophiles like myself. A great little site. Head on over to Goodreads. If you like books, you like big books and you cannot lie, go on over to Goodreads, sign up, create an account. You can link it to your Amazon account and then import books you've bought on Amazon. As you buy them, you can have them incorporated in. It's kind of cool. We don't do that, but you could. Look me up, follow me, friend me. I keep a running tally of books that I have read, am reading, or want to read in the future on there. I occasionally still post reviews, but I've been pretty lax this year, pretty busy. But let's go over to Goodreads and let's see what we find on that site for Why Liberalism Failed by Patrick Deneen. Here, I won't read the summary again because they pretty much have a copy-paste of Audible's summary, but I will read about the author. Patrick J. Deneen holds a BA in English literature and a PhD in political science from Rutgers University. From 1995 to 1997, he was speechwriter and special advisor to the director of the United States Information Agency. From 1997 to 2005, he was assistant professor of government at Princeton University. From 2005 to 2012, he was Tsakopoulos Konolakis, associate professor of government at Georgetown University. And I probably butchered that Greek sounding name. I don't know how to say that, <laughs> apparently. Before joining uh, the faculty of Notre Dame in fall 2012, he was at Georgetown. That's all you really need to know. He was an associate professor of government at Georgetown. Before joining the faculty of Notre Dame in fall 2012, he is the author and editor of several books and numerous articles and reviews and has delivered invited lectures around the country and several foreign nations. Deneen was awarded the APSA's Leo Strauss Award for Best Dissertation in Political Theory in 1995 and an honorable mention for the APSA's Best First Book Award in 2000. He has been awarded research fellowship from Princeton University and the Earhart Foundation. His teaching and writing interests focus on the history of political thought, American political thought, religion and politics, and literature and politics. You may have heard Patrick Deneen's name mentioned by me before as I have read a few of his articles on this podcast and talked about them. This is the first book by him I have read. But this one uh, was recommended to me After my having read *The Righteous Mind* by Jonathan Haidt, I was looking for something that would offset the atheism of Haidt, and this did not disappoint. This was a good read. And speaking of good reads, I'll read for you a selection from a review from December twenty-first of twenty seventeen, which is to say that the audiobook version came out in two thousand eighteen. The Hardcover of this was published about five months earlier in the same year. This guy, Murtadza, I'm guessing got an early advanced copy. He probably knows Patrick Deneen. He was able to write a review December 21st, 2017, before the book was even published, or maybe it was a later edition. I'm not sure. But here's what Murtaza's five star review has to say in part. Quote, those of us born into a post-Cold War world have no memory of a mass political ideology other than liberalism. As a result, liberalism doesn't appear to us an ideology at all, at least not in the same sense that communism and fascism do. Just like a fish isn't aware of the water it swims in, and we generally aren't aware of the air that we breathe, liberalism seems to us as simply the natural way of things, rather than as an ideological program with specific attributes, tenets, and anthropological contentions. In reality, however, liberalism as a project of the Enlightenment is a distinct sociopolitical ideology that contains many contentious assumptions about human beings and the natural world. Although I'm not sure that liberalism has failed in the sense that it will cease to exist, It seems increasingly incapable of providing for the material and spiritual needs of most ordinary people, though it continues to provide great benefits to a highly empowered elite. Quote, liberalism becomes daily more visible precisely because its deformations are becoming too obvious to ignore. End quote. Deneen writes, his book is a provocative attack on liberalism to court, which is worth engaging with regardless of one's own preferences. As the gap, between the lofty rhetoric of liberal politics and the lived reality of most people widens. The visibility of liberalism as a distinct ideology rather than a default state of nature may soon lead to its collapse barring some sort of course correction. What replaces it could be either outright despotism or an even worse sociopolitical program. To understand liberalism's contradictions To use the Marxist term, it's important to understand the roots of its claims to human emancipation. Liberalism claims to free people from artificial bonds imposed by cultures and distinct local communities that have been deemed oppressive if they infringe on the ability to the self to do as it wills. Through the power of the state and market, it eradicates or weakens intermediate institutions, including the family. That historically have been tasked with molding human beings in particular directions. Instead, it liberates individuals in order to give untrammeled indulgence to the individual will. Under liberalism, people can and should do what they want and should not be trained in what is best to want, which would again be a form of artifice and oppression, as long as people meet the narrow requirement of not breaking the law or causing immediate physical harm to others, they are free to do as they wish. This is the modern idea of liberty. The classical conception dating from at least Greek antiquity was very different. Instead of freedom to do as you wish, within the bounds of the law, the classical definition of liberty was intended to educate people in character and virtue in order to liberate them from their base desires and instincts. Freedom meant freedom from enslavement to the appetite. Requiring an education that taught individuals how to regulate their wants and needs in relation to both a personal and common good. Such a liberation from animal instinct would help individuals become full fledged human beings capable of reaching their true potential and living in harmonious coexistence with others in their society. This lofty definition of liberty is far from how most people understand it today, particularly in the United States, where liberty has degenerated into a political slogan giving license to indulge in hedonism, consumption, sloth, and even militaristic violence towards the other. Now, we'll stop right there because this is a very long review. It's a good review at goodreads.com, but it's a very long one. And again, for the sake of time, I just can't. I can't talk about everything in equal measure simultaneously. I want to key in on just a couple of points and I want to provide my own commentary on this, although you can read the rest of Murtaza's review at goodreads.com. Yet another reason to go and sign up and create an account so you can find just this sort of a thing or this thing specifically if you're interested in the rest. Let's draw on a, a few threads here. One is competing anthropological views. Competing Views of man. Competing views of God are upstream of these competing views of man, as I was telling you before. And you might say, okay, fine, right? That's fine that we have disagreement about the nature of man and the nature of God. That doesn't mean you're right, Garrett. Okay, fine. All right, fine. And we may disagree even that liberalism has failed. We can't disagree that there are cracks that have formed around the idea or within the idea itself as expressed of liberal democracy. In America, this is being hinted at, although not sufficiently appreciated by the majority of people who are commenting, I don't think, this is being hinted at every time you hear the Democrats talk about a threat to our democracy or every time conservatives get really worried about us losing the republic. I would say these are two sides of the same coin, and what is agreed on either way is that liberal democracy in America is failing if it hasn't failed. It is failing, and we see the evidence that it's failing in the kinds of stories that I was reading for you up to this point that I was trying to set the stage for you appreciating this book with. Liberal journos are out here gaslighting, telling us that our bills aren't high because of inflation. It's all because of high prices. You know, For instance, for example, inflationary pressure on the ability to house oneself, clothe oneself, transport oneself, do meaningful, rewarding work, eat. <laughs> These are cracks. Even the distrust in the institution of journalism, it's a crack. The Hyperventilating defense of the institution of journalism. It's a crack. It demonstrates that this is a fragile thing, that the people who are defending, maintaining confidence in the institution, they feel like it's in great peril and we're going to lose this thing. They might say, you should restore your faith and stop questioning it. And the other side might be saying, you should not have any faith in this journalistic institution in the first place. That's part of how we're gonna restore faith in the institution, but either way, what's agreed on is that the institution is very fragile and our faith in the institution is very fragile and there are reasons. Even how we talk about it is a fragile thing. Whether we talk about it, if you raise certain questions, that's being now debated whether that's acceptable, whether that's appropriate, why? Because the consensus is said to be so fragile these institutions are said to be so fragile that to even question them is an attack on our democracy. Denver, as a city, seeing double-digit percentage increases just in a few short years on the homeless population spending $2 billion, roughly thirty dollars to $60,000 over the last three years to take care of homeless people in the metropolitan area. Those are cracks in the liberal democratic ideology as expressed whether we understand economics to be the domain primarily of individual men and women as they manage their homes, or the domain of people with advanced degrees in the bureaucracy, the bureaucratic state, or in elected office, or in the professorship of some higher institution of learning, whether we see it one way or the other, the fact that so many of us have no idea that oikonomos the rule of the home, home rule, home management is the root. That's a crack. What Hillary Clinton says about Donald Trump on The View, whether you agree with her and you say, oh, yeah, I'm with her, you know, hashtag I'm with her, or you think she's up to her old tricks again and you're glad she wasn't president, all of it, right? All of it points to the validity of at least asking, is liberalism failing? Is it on life support? I would say if it's not dead, it's being kept on a ventilator. And the ventilator really is this printing of money. And that's part of why the inflation problem isn't going away anytime soon, because it's a house of cards. If the government stops supporting these social programs, they've too successfully convinced successive generations of Americans that you can count on the government program, and you don't need to have a strong marriage, a strong nuclear family, a strong extended family. You don't need to have a strong church, a strong local community. You don't need any of that. You don't owe those institutions any special consideration, but then what else does that mean? That means that when everybody believes that, when everybody agrees, okay, yeah, we don't. You're right. I'm going to be liberated from external constraints, whether they're familial, whether they're communitarian, whether they are religious. When everybody believes that, what do they do? They divest. They don't commit themselves. They don't put their time, attention, and their resources into building those institutions up. And so they're very weakened institutions. Why? Because they're expecting the same people who divest from those traditional institutions are counting on the government programs the government solutions to continue being solvent if they're not solvent if the amount of money just paid to service the interest on the national debt is set here shortly to surpass what our government spends annually on defense on maintaining the military that protects our country we are fast approaching either the brick wall of these programs being shuttered and then people realize Ooh, whoa, wait a second. There's no safety net. Quick, you know, <laughs> everybody to the church. <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll meet you back at the house. We need to talk about our marriage. We need to talk about, you know, what our plans are for the holidays, getting together with mom and dad or my brother's family or my cousins or, you know, for so many people for decades, for generations, they have counted on the government to be the solution to all these problems. If the government is now unable to because the economy is actually built in the home, and it's actually built in the local community, and it's actually supported and given a safety net with the local church offering support when people come on hard times, there's an illness, there's an accident, there's a death in the family, there's a natural disaster. The only thing that's keeping this thing alive in America, the way that it's been contrived, as the autonomous individual being the other side of the coin, as Patrick Denine points out, to statism. When the state ceases to be an endless wish-granter, <laughs> the gift that keeps on giving, the genie in the bottle, you just keep rubbing it and keep making wishes, so also the autonomous individual will find themselves homeless will find themselves self-medicating with drugs and alcohol and what do we find we find that is on the rise the autonomous individual when they despair will fall on their sword or they will shoot themselves or they'll hang themselves or they'll jump off a bridge or they'll they'll take pills and go to sleep and never wake up again so what do we see we see suicide on the rise we see an epidemic of loneliness we see people as they get old If they have children, their children don't want anything to do with them. Why? Because they were their own selfish pig. Because the parents wanted to affirm their own liberalism, functional liberalism or otherwise. Maybe it was outright liberalism or maybe it was just functional liberalism. So they taught their children those ideas. They trained up their children in the way that they shouldn't have gone when they got older. Now that they're older, they don't depart from it. So they don't come to see them. They don't visit them. They don't check on them. They don't take care of them. They certainly don't invite them into their home. Hey, you know, mom, dad, come live with us and we'll take care of you. So you see increasingly older people, if they have children, they've been abandoned by their children because the fifth commandment was transferred. That filial piety was transferred to the state. And if they don't have children, well, then they hope to live off of social security. And as the baby boomer generation finds that the chickens have come home to roost or more to the point, the chickens haven't come home to roost and now there's no eggs. We don't have enough chickens laying eggs because of abortion, because of contraception having been overused. If there's ever a application that's legitimate for contraception, the vast majority of women who took birth control pills over the last 50 years did so just because they wanted to be able to fool around and not get pregnant and not have a child to take care of and raise. And then if they did have children, they acted as though those children should be resented. All of this points to again, if not the already, then the soon to come failure of liberalism. And so you hear, for instance, and here's where I might shock you out of your gourd, you hear Hillary Clinton alluding to something that is a legitimate concern, if not with Donald Trump per se, with someone, but then who's to say not with Donald Trump? A legitimate concern is that we will soon have a president of the united states who is dictatorial who says okay enough with this autonomous individualism crap we can't afford it literally literally we're bankrupt as a country also we can't risk it because we're on the verge of a war or we get into the thick of a war and now you need emergency powers to the man of the hour who will be your American Caesar. The odds are high that what follows judges, where there was no king in Israel, remember, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. What follows closely after judges is First Samuel. The people say, you're old. Behold, you are old. Okay, Boomer, your kids are not like you. We want a king like the surrounding nations. And we're more likely to get somebody like Saul, just to be honest with you. My survey of history, we're more likely to get a Saul than we are to get a David. So we get Saul. And he will probably, like like Hillary Clinton is saying, you know, Hitler was duly elected. Yeah. Yes, he was. But then again, look at what the Weimar Republic was like. I'm sorry, Weimar is how it's pronounced, but it's spelled Weimar. <clears throat> Look at the Weimar Republic that printed money until the currency became completely worthless. The nation was subjected to humiliation after humiliation after humiliation out of revenge, vindictiveness imposed on a proud people after World War One. Also, the brown shirts, by the way, bullied harassed, terrorized, in some cases murdered anybody else who had another idea about how Germany should be governed moving forward. And so, yeah, yeah, you know, in that context, Hitler was duly elected. Sure. But then also part of the context of the Weimar Republic and the rise of Nazism in Germany was compulsory government schooling on the Prussian model, which is exactly what I write about in my book. And this is why we homeschool. This is what I've been trying to tell people And I mean it. And this is why we homeschool. And this is why Dietrich Bonhoeffer's parents wanted Dietrich and his siblings to be homeschooled. We think, like fish in water who don't realize that we're wet, that liberalism is something you can just transpose into, oh, I don't know, an Arab country or a Muslim country, if not necessarily Arab, strictly speaking, a Muslim country. You can just transpose liberal democracy and that will lead to material prosperity. And what's telling is, what's the liberal democracy doing in Afghanistan and Iraq? Has their material prosperity, those countries' material prosperity, has it gone dramatically up? Are the people of Iraq and Afghanistan so much freer, so much happier, so much more productive and prosperous today than they were? No. No, they're not. Which is to say that Our elites, even on the Republican side of things for decades, have also put too much stock in liberal democracy. And now that they've tried counterinsurgency, the war on terror, constant surveillance of telecommunications, not just of foreign nationals, but also people here in the country, they've built these systems to listen to every word that you say, to try and anticipate whether you will be a terrorist, act like a terrorist, commit an act of terrorism. But then if you couple all of that capability with a sudden realization that liberal democracy has bankrupted itself and it's insolvent, what to expect shortly when this does well and truly obvious to all totally collapse, what to expect is someone will be granted emergency powers and then they just won't ever surrender them. They just won't ever put them away. Cincinnati, Ohio is named Cincinnati after the Roman general Cincinnatus. He was an exception, by the way. He he was unusual. Here are these emergency powers. Okay, now that the emergency has passed, what are you going to do? I'm going to go back to my farm, actually. What? Really? That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. uh, Thanks. See you guys. In the vast majority of cases throughout history, that does not happen. The emergency ends, but then, well, now we've got other problems. Now we've got other things that we need to fix, but we've already got this all set up. You know what? Just, just stay in office. It's fine. It's okay. We'll adjust. There's no real going back. Patrick Deneen's book, and I'll just finish with this thing, this one little piece that I found extraordinary. As this was described, I thought, man, that's such a great analogy. He talks about the cowbird and the cowbird being a notorious, uh, how do you say, villain. (laughs) Cowbirds are awful, you know, they're just awful uh, because what do they do? The mom and the dad, you know, they mate. And when it's time to lay the egg, that egg, it's not laid in a nest that is a cowbird nest. It will become a cowbird nest, but it's going to be somebody else's nest. So you lay the cowbird egg in the nest of some other bird. And then when that cowbird hatches, they push the eggs of the other bird, the bird whose nest that is, they push those eggs out and then they you know fall to the ground and crack open. And that's the end of that bird. That little chick is just not going to be until it's just the cowbird. And that cowbird, when mom and dad bird come on back with food, following their paternal and maternal instincts, they feed the cowbird like it's their chick. That's not their chick. Patrick Deneen explains, I think, really, really well and very helpfully, that's exactly what liberals in the modern sense have been doing. Leftists have been doing, progressives have been doing, For about the last century with language, they put their idea like a cowbird's egg into the nest of classical liberalism, which was very much influenced, very much formed itself within the family of the Christian West or the Christianized West. They put their cowbird of secular progressivism, leftism, in many cases, socialism, and even outright Marxism, they put their egg into the nest of liberalism, and when it hatched, it shoved out the other eggs. It shoved out the other chicks so that mommy and daddy would feed the cowbird chick. Words like freedom, words like liberal, words like liberty, words like economics have been changed And you can hear this happen in real time. If you listen to a lot of Democrat politicians and pundits and professors, listen to folks on the left give a speech on their candidacy or their policy proposals or what the other side is doing right now or what the other side is saying right now or what problems face us. They'll present a term in real time and they'll say, my opponent says he's for such and such. But what such and such really is, is, and then they proceed to give you a new definition, like laying a cowbird egg in some other bird's nest. And for many of us who have not received an education, we've received in this country, if we went to public schools, we've received indoctrination, we've received obedience training. For many of us, we think because we didn't know really the definition of the word in the first place or the term in the first place, Somebody giving us any definition whatsoever, particularly in the context of a specific issue, that's as good information as we had ever gotten on what this actually even means. And so, oh, I guess that's just the definition. That's just what it is. But going back to the summary of why liberalism failed, that's much the same as supposing that this is just the natural world. We don't recognize that modern, secular, liberal democracy is ideological. And, you know, I was thinking about this the other day with regards to technological advancements. The way a lot of people carry on, you would think if you do some throwback to earlier periods, some of the paradigms, the social imaginary, let's say, of the medieval period or classical antiquity, in any respect, if you were to throw back to those periods and start pulling some of their old traditions forward to the present again, you would think the way some people carry on, all of a sudden it would be like an EMP had gone off. As in, you wouldn't be able to have your smartphone able to make calls and receive texts. All of a sudden your GPS wouldn't work. Your automobile and jet engines on airplanes wouldn't work. Electricity and running water in your house, none of these things would still be with us. They would just poof. But that's ridiculous. And how much of that is just positive association? Because like with the manipulative game that's been played with language, like a cowbird laying an egg in some other bird's nest, the liberal democracy folks, the leftist progressive folks, the godless, the functional liberalism folks too, have told us that the reason why we have these advancements, the reason why we had the material prosperity in the first place was because of godlessness, was because of autonomous individuality, was because of statism. Two sides of the same coin, which also, by the way, Patrick Deneen really helpfully explains as two sides of the same coin. You think that the libertarian is totally opposite the dictatorial, statist, communist sympathizer. But they're two sides of the same coin. Folks go all in on everything within the state, nothing outside of the state, from each according to his ability to each according to his need, because they want to realize this vision of the autonomous individual. It's Pleasure Island. It's the land of toys from Pinocchio. It's not actually going to be freedom. It's going to be slavery. When the state controls the means of production, owns the means of production, it owns you. In part, it owns you because it rations what you will get, what is deemed to be your fair share. And if you cause any trouble, if you upset somebody, if you upset the people who administer the bread line, they will get you to behave by just withholding the bread until you apologize. But that's the other side of the coin for the folks who say we shouldn't have any government at all, in these various ways. What is that? I don't want the government constraining what I do and what I say, or constraining what anybody else does and says, because I want to act like an autonomous individual and just do whatever I want. So they feed off each other, ironically. Their common cause is, I get to do whatever I want. And I don't have to fear God. I don't have to keep his commands. The whole duty of man is to fear God and keep his commandments. I don't have to do either of those if I'm an autonomous individual who just does whatever I want all the time and you can't tell me what to do. Or if I am for an all-powerful state which protects me from the consequences of my bad actions, my bad behavior, supports any bastard children I have while I'm fooling around with women. Or I am the woman, perhaps, sleeping around, getting pregnant by several men, And I don't have to worry about ever having to actually settle down with any of those men because why? Because the government will house me, clothe me, feed me, and my children, take my children off my hands during the day. And again, I I think going back to the piece by Brian Laughlin and Doug Ponder in Sola Ecclesia, a lot of us outside of the church or inside the church, either way, we're doing these things, participating in this subconsciously, like Patrick Deneen's book Summary gets at. It's fish in water who don't realize they're wet. At a certain point though, and this is why it's important to know these things, and this is not just an abstract thought exercise, if economics at root is home management, then you need to know that at a certain point this well and truly does collapse in on itself. If there's not major reform, which would be ideal actually, because if it's not reform, it's going to be revolution. If there's not a major reform, contrary to all the worst aspects of the secular progressive, secular humanist paradigm that has caused this to fail, if there's not a major reform, then we're going to see at a certain point, the power goes out and the ventilator ceases to keep the subject alive. And then it's going to be pandemonium for a time. It might be Months, it might be years. And then, in all probability, it will be somebody who is not exactly asking nicely anymore. And then we will have a totally different system. Hopefully, we can reform it. But then, what do you find? You find these asthmatic responses to any efforts to reform along the lines of what is causing the patient to be comatose in the first place, unable to breathe on their own. And those same people when they don't have a backup plan, they don't have a safety net. The government is their backup plan. It is their answer for everything. Those very same people, they're going to be a terror for a period of time when this totally falls apart. And you should know that. If you are serious about managing your own affairs, managing your own home, leading and loving your own family well, if you're serious about loving your church family well, to know that liberalism is failing, and has failed, even if we don't realize it, all of us just yet, that will help you to invest wisely. Shore up your household. Make sure that your home management is minding the P's and Q's, dotting the I's, crossing the T's. Make sure that your investment in local church is purposeful and intentional and with a view to a resilient church that endures something like uh, dark ages. Actually, this is something that Rod Draher gets at. And Deneen references Rod Draher, by the way, at the very, very tail end of his book. He says, you know, there are some who are saying we need to do the Benedict Option thing where we kind of just circle wagons in our various locales and prepare to ride out the Dark Ages. And that's one option. That is one option. Is it the only option? No. There are others who are, you know, the deus volt folk who are like Stephen Wolfe starting to articulate what's uncarefully referred to shorthand as Christian nationalism, but they're openly calling for another, praying for another Charlemagne, another Constantine. Let's have a Christian king. Let's have a Christian emperor. That's what we need. And for that matter too, quite simply, on both sides, whether we're talking Democrats, entrusting more and more king-like, emperor-like powers in the office of the presidency, expecting those kinds of things from the office of the president, or we're talking about Donald Trump supporters who openly say, yeah, you know what, we'd be good with him being king for life. Either way, it's adding up to exactly this thing that Patrick Deneen works off of for an assumption and for a premise. Liberalism has failed. Now let's do the postmortem. Let's do the after action. Let's do the root cause analysis. And what comes next? God knows. And also, oh by the way, we should pray and ask God for wisdom. (laughs) That's not a small point. That's not a minor uh, addendum. Like, oh by the way, no, ask God for wisdom. These are trying times. It's not just you. If you are having a hard time managing your home economy because the price of everything is going up and your compensation for goods or services that you sell, you receive money for, you know, that's staying fairly static, fairly flat. It's not in keeping with the cost of Everything else, you're not alone. You are not alone, and it's probably going to get worse before it gets better. But pray and ask God for wisdom and trust that the Lord will provide. And for that matter, read passages like Second Samuel chapter four, which I'll leave you with here, a reminder that that's how we started this episode. That's where we got our jump, Ishbosheth murdered. Why? Because Abner had been murdered. With Abner out of the way, even ish own captains were ready to turn on him in hopes of getting a reward. Or maybe they thought, we'll take things into our own hands here and we'll expedite the transfer. Maybe they knew that Abner was going to transfer the kingdom to David. Maybe they'd been told by Abner or word had gone around. Abner was killed in Hebron. Why was he in Hebron? Why why was he at David's court in the first place? He was probably going to transfer the kingdom to David. And so these guys were going to help it along. And don't be those guys. But do know it's likely as things continue to unravel, it's likely that you're going to have more of that sort of a thing happen when people have no fear of God before their eyes. They don't fear God and they don't keep his commandments. If you do fear God, though, and if you do keep his commandments, and if you do trust in God— And not just on paper, but practically, you should expect that it will go well with the righteous. And you should expect that just like God provides the reins for the just and the unjust, just like Paul writes in Romans 13, that governments are instituted among men by God. Government is ordained by God to reward those who do what is good, to punish those who do what is evil. It is just a question of when God will bring Better government, new government. Will there be a period of time where it's chaos, it's anarchy, everybody does what's right in their own eyes? Yes, I think we're more or less in that period right now. And for those who don't just do whatever is right in their own eyes, they do what is right according to God, they follow after Christ, they put their trust in Christ. We have everything that we need for life and godliness in Christ. We have the Word of God so that we can know. What is the will of God for our lives? We have the capacity to have families and to invest in our families. We have the capacity to get involved in a local church and to build up the church and to edify our fellow believers in Christ. That is what we should be doing, I'm convinced. Why did liberalism fail? Because insofar as liberalism went secular and believed that man in a state of nature... Was the ideal, the state of nature, being without any constraint, any external call to do one's duty, or even say what your duty is, they forgot God. There was no fear of God before their eyes. Insofar as there was an earlier and better idea of what it meant to be liberal, wherein you would know the truth and the truth would set you free, you would be disciplined and self-controlled and not just led around by your passions. If we can go back to an earlier kind of liberalism before the word was co-opted, like a cowbird being dropped in the nest. If we can go back to being free because the sun has set us free and we're free indeed, if we can go back to knowing the truth and the truth setting us free, it will go well with us. But that's all the time I've got for this episode. I really do have to run. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless.